All right, I'm going to start off this morning kind of giving a, um, an overview of the church in Matthew 16. I'm going to give you a lot of Bible today, so if you have your Bible, um, you're going to need to get it out, and uh, we're going to go through it. We're going to go through a lot of uh, passages in the New Testament, and I want to start in Matthew 16, where Christ mentions the church for the first time, the ecclesia. The church, the local gathering of believers. And in Matthew 16, starting in verse 16, I'm going to jump in there. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. One of the most profound sentences ever said, particularly as it relates to the church. Because it's that statement that Christ says, it is on that statement that I am building my church. He goes on, uh, you can see Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overpower it. Okay? And I want to start there because in that passage is the foundation and the cornerstone of everything we're going to talk about this morning that the church, the ecclesia, the local gathering of the body of, of Christ, is a reflection of Christ. It's His. He's the foundation. He's building it. He says that right there. Um, um, he will protect it. It's for His glory, and it's a gift to you and I as believers. That church is for believers. Church is what Christians do. It's the gathering of believers in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 15, you don't have to turn there. The church is called Ecclesia, the church. It's called the household of God, speaking of the familial, close relationships of people in the church. And it's also called the pillar and support of the truth, which goes back to that statement that says um, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Christ has designed his church, and he has. Um, designed and appointed the leadership of the church, elders and pastors, not popes, okay, not uh, um, priests, but elders and pastors. And those that term, you're going to hear me use both of those terms this morning. In Scripture, elders and pastors are the same word, okay? Any distinction that we understand here between an elder and a pastor is cultural. I'll just call it that. We tend to think of pastors here as people who are on paid staff at Grace Church, and elders are people like me who have other jobs, and we do ministry on the church, in the church on top, but on top of all of that. But in the Bible, elder and pastor is interchangeable. And elders and pastors are directly charged with the protection and the guarding of the church. So here's some realities about the church. Foundation, the church belongs to Christ. He's the head, he makes the rules, the church is the body of Christ, meaning it is for Christians. Does that mean that non-Christians are not welcome? That is not what that means. What that means is those who identify with the local church as members are believers. The church is populated by sinners, and all God's sinners said, amen, right? We understand that. There will be sin in the church and among the members of the church, and Another um, reality is that Satan will attack the church by any means necessary. 
Okay, we know this from experience, but also from Matthew 16 and what I just read to you. Christ would not have said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it unless the gates of hell were going to what? Try. Okay, so ultimately, Christ is going to protect his church. And that attack, we know from Acts 20, and you can turn there if you want. We'll get there in just a sec. We know from Acts chapter 20 that the attack on the church is going to come from the outside, and it's also going to come from within the church, the inside of the church. So Christ, the head of the church, has delegated the responsibility and authority to guard the church from these attacks to the elders. And all of us, as members of the church, have a role in that. So Christ has authorized a process of discipline to protect and purify the church. And before we go to that, let's look at Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, starting in verse 28, this is Paul talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he says this, Verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Now, that statement there is a warning to the elders to be on guard for themselves first and also to be on guard for the, um, on behalf of the rest of the church. Be on guard for yourself is a parallel, really, to 1 Timothy 4.16, where the command is given to Timothy to pay close attention to your life and to your teaching or your doctrine. Okay, so that is the charge individually, but also, he says then, be on guard for the church. And then he adds a lot of weight to these commands. There's enormous weight in this passage because he says, um, be on guard for yourself for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There's three statements there. The elders and pastors are appointed by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Why are they appointed? To shepherd the church of God. And there's a lot of um, loaded meaning in that. And he adds weight to it when he says it's Christ's church. Right? It's purchased with his blood. Okay? So there's three really profound truths here. Elders are appointed by the Holy Spirit to shepherd the church, um, and the church belongs to Christ. It is not my church. It's not even your church. The church belongs to who? Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is a weighty responsibility, and that shepherding in this context is defined as be on guard for yourself and for all the flock. It's kind of the cornerstone um, of the responsibility of elder leadership in the church. And then verse 29, he describes the two types of attacks on the church. Verse 29 talks about the internal or the external. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then verse 30 says, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, verse 31, be on the what? Alert, be on guard. Okay? So this whole section is, is book-ended, if you will, with be on guard for yourself and for all the flock, and then he says it again, be on the alert. Acts 20 refers to specific concerns that reference the source of the trouble, inside and out, 
and the results of inaction on the part of the shepherds. If the elders do not do their job, the flock will not be spared and disciples are pulled away, not to follow Christ, but to follow men who are not interested in following Christ. So implicit in the leadership described in Acts 20 is a guardianship that actively observes and appropriately reacts to the threats to the church. So let me give you an overview of what all those, how those threats are defined in Scripture. Okay, and we're going to see all of this um, this morning. But there are threats from within. We're going to really deal with the internal threats. If you want to de- um, talk about the external threats, we're showing a movie July 23rd in the evening that you can come see <laughs> as an example. What we're focusing on today are the threats within. And the Bible makes clear that the threats within can come from any one of us. And that is unrepentant personal sin among members of the church. That's the one we tend to think of right away, right? There's dissensions, those who cause dissensions in the church. They create factions in the church. There are those who are stumbling blocks, who become hindrances to the fellowship of the church or the sound teaching of the church. In fact, Christ in Luke 17:1 said to his disciples, even then, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. And he describes those stumbling blocks, and then he ends that with, be on guard. Okay, so what he said to his disciples in Luke 17, now he has delegated to the elders and pastors of the church in Acts 20. So you have sin, unrepentant sin in the church, you have dissension, factions, hindrances, and then you have blasphemers. Those who the Bible say slander Christ, they slander the gospel, they slander Christ's church, or they speak lightly or profanely of sacred things. That's what a blasphemer is. Okay, there's another threat internally. And the threat internally is the leadership of the church. And the Bible is very explicit, and we're going to see this this morning, that there's three threats from leadership. You have disobedient leadership. Leadership of a church who will not guard the church and root sin out of the church. That's one threat. Another threat from leadership is sinning elders. Personal sin and ungodliness among church leadership. That is a threat to the church. And then the third threat from the leadership of the church potentially is the authoritarian and prideful exercise of leadership in the church. 1 Peter 5 talks about elders who are motivated by lording it over people or serving for sordid gain. And what we're going to look at this morning because of the topic of what we're here to talk about is We're going to look briefly at Diotrephes, who's an example of someone who exercised church discipline in an inappropriate way. Even that's a threat. Okay? So elders are tasked with addressing internal dangers, including from leadership, without bias and without favoritism. And the form of that response is what's commonly known as church discipline, And as soon as I say church discipline, those words, there's tension for a lot of people. Many people immediately think of Matthew 18, and that is totally appropriate. 
But I think what I want to show you this morning that while Matthew 18 is the template and the framework, that is not the process that's followed every time. Okay? Matthew 18 obviously is two chapters after Christ in our Bible, after Christ has established his intention for the church, and then he says this is how you keep the church pure. It is amazing to me that churches do not exercise church discipline. It's in the same red letters in Matthew 18 that you see in Matthew 16. And if you believe what Matthew 16 says, then you have to believe what Matthew 18 says. Because Christ said, I'm the head of the church. And then two chapters later, he says, this is how church discipline is to be done. Matthew 18 lays out the call to repentance and the process of restoration for someone in the church who's in a sinful lifestyle. It's also the means and the process of removing from the church those who may not be part of the body of Christ. But before we dive into Matthew 18, I want to pause and set the table a little bit and deal with two topics very quickly um, in the Bible. One is discipline, and the other is repentance. These are core terms when you talk about church discipline, obviously, what is discipline? And then um, we want to look at the concept of repentance. Discipline, or the authority to exercise discipline in the church, must be consistent with the exercise of discipline of the, the exercise of discipline by God Himself and His expectation for discipline even in the home. It's all of the same cloth. And in Hebrews 12, the discipline of the Lord is described. And you don't have to turn there because I'm not, you can if you want, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. I'm going to fly over it and kind of give you some principles. A summary, if you will, of, of Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 13. There's six principles of how God disciplines you and me. And these, I think, will be very obvious to you in their application on how discipline in the church is to be exercised by the elders of the church. First of all, discipline is purposeful. God's discipline of us is purposeful. It is for a reason. It is not negative. It is positive. We cannot confuse the term discipline with punishment. Punishment is different. Discipline is a positive process. It is good. In fact, verse 12 of Hebrews 12 says, it strengthens the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. That is a positive process. Second, God's discipline of us, and therefore our discipline of our children and discipline in the church, is based on intimate relationship. If you read Hebrews 12, you will see, um, I think it's 12 references to the father-son relationship, the familial relationship. And it's not from the standpoint of rank. It is from the standpoint of close love, knowledge of each other, and it is in that context that the most effective discipline takes place. And that's why 1 Peter 5.2 commands the elders to shepherd the flock among you. Discipline here at Grace Church, discipline... um, Uh, Biblical discipline in the church is not something that goes to some committee at a denominational headquarters for them to decide. 
It is in the context of intimate relationship. And we'll talk more about that. Third, discipline is serious. It is serious. It's designed to deal with serious issues. Sin, your soul. Um, And it produces serious results. Repentance, righteousness, and restoration. Verse 4 in Hebrews 12 talks about the striving of sin. And verse 5 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord is serious. The discipline of the Lord is also painful. It's painful. It's necessary. That pain is temporary. It's effective, but it can be intense. And you see things in Hebrews 12, like the being implored not to faint when we're reproved. Or those whom the Lord loves, he scourges. That term scourge means to plague, to blight, to curse. That's pain. Verse 11 says that all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. That's part of the pain of the discipline process. Fifth, discipline, God's discipline of us is expected. It's normal. You should expect it. It's expected as a child of God, and it is the culture of a loving family and a loving church. That's why... You know, the saying is, don't go to a church that won't throw you out. Okay? Why? Because church discipline is commanded, but also it's a reflection of um, what's expected in the Christian life. Number six, God's discipline of us produces results. It produces results. So it's purposeful. It's based on intimate relationship. It is serious it is painful, it is expected, and it produces results. And Hebrews 12 lays out those results. Endurance, life, we share in His holiness. It strengthens the hands that are weak. It makes straight paths for our feet, and it's healing. That's God's discipline of us, and that is to be um, to illuminate the process of discipline in the church. We do not want to exercise discipline outside of the model of Christ's discipline of us. So biblical discipline, God's discipline of us, mirrors the gospel. The gospel is this, that you and I are sinners. And we come to a place where we're confronted, there is conviction and there is confession of sin, right? And based on that confession of sin, there's a request for forgiveness. Forgiveness is extended. There is a restoration of the relationship. And then there is repentance. Okay? Then there's repentance. A changed life. And I want to talk a bit now about repentance. Repentance is central, a central concept when we talk about church discipline. Repentance is a change of mind and direction, okay? It is not words. It's very, very important. The discipline process in the church starts with addressing sin and ends either in repent. There's only two ends to the Matthew 18 or the church discipline process. Repentance, excommunication, okay? And that excommunication or that removal from the church is not because of the sin, 
It is because of the failure to what? Repent. Okay? Nobody is put out of the church for being a sinner. If they were, I'd be the first one out, and I think you all would be right behind me, wouldn't you? Okay, it's an important distinction. It's important to think about that. Okay, so someone who refuses or is unable to repent is probably an unbeliever. That's a big statement, but that's a cornerstone of church discipline. And let me say that again. Someone who refuses or is unable to repent probably is an unbeliever. And I'm going to back that up with Scripture because I don't want you to believe it just because I say it. But repentance is the path to salvation, and a life of unrepentant sin is inconsistent with that claim to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Repentance happens at salvation. The church is a gathering of people who are saved, who have repented for the forgiveness of their sins. Mark 1, verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You've heard that, right? Ten verses later, Mark says, after John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee and preached the same gospel message. It says in verse 15 that he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent, and believe in the gospel. Repentance and salvation goes together. And just to make that point even more clear, in Romans chapter 2, there is a distinction drawn between the saved and the unsaved, as is done throughout Romans, by the way. But in verse 4 of chapter 2, well, and let me just say this, the unrepentant hearts belong to the unsaved. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 2. Do you not, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to what? Repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. That whole, starting in verse 5 through verse 6, is a description that does not apply to believers. And included in that description is an unrepentant heart. So that repentance is part of salvation. Repentance, repentance is part of the Christian life, isn't it? I think of Psalm 51. David's been confronted by Nathan, and he lays out confession and repentance for the world to see. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. That we call it 1 Corinthians. It was a brutal letter. And we're going to spend some time in one of the chapters of that letter where he rips the leadership of the church. 2 Corinthians was written to reflect on a number of things, including their repentance. And in 2 Corinthians 7, he refers to it as their godly sorrow, their repentance without regret, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, avenging of the wrong, a great picture of what real repentance looks like. And none of that is words. All of that is action. 
Okay, 2 Timothy 2.25, you're probably familiar with this verse. We are to gently correct those in opposition if perhaps God may grant them what? Repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. Repentance is part of the Christian life. Hebrews 12, we talked about that. You can go back and read that. The goal of discipline is laid out in Hebrews 12, and it is changed behavior. It's repentance. So with that as background and introduction, um, now I want to walk through the New Testament to look at all the places where church discipline is referenced. And you may um, see us reference some passages and not realize it's a church discipline situation. But let's start in Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18, this is... um, This kind of lays it out very, very clearly. And if you've heard about there being four steps in the Matthew discipline process, it is because they are laid out in Matthew 18 very clearly. And by the way, this process, church discipline, is not about politics. It's not about the preferences of the pastor or the elders. It's not about personalities. It tells us in the first few words of Matthew 18, verse 15, what it is about. If a brother sins. Do you see that? That's what we're talking about. Okay? And nowhere in Scripture is there an explicit listing. This is very frustrating to some of us. There's no explicit listing of what we're talking about here. What sins? I get asked this a lot. What about the sin of fill in the blank? Well, are they repentant? That's really the issue. What seems to be emphasized here are principles of dealing with a sinning brother or someone who claims to be a brother, a believer. And some examples of this in the recent history here at Grace Church are immorality of all kinds, which wouldn't surprise you, theft, slander, abandonment of marriage and family, factious behavior, false teaching, Um, dishonesty and deception. Those are some of the cases that we've dealt with recently here at Grace Church. But the broad topic and the very clear topic is if a brother sins. Is this applicable to a few people? It's actually applicable to every single one of us. And I'm going to tell you in advance, every single one of us has been in the Matthew 18 process. Okay? Here's the steps. Verse 15, first step, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's the first step. Second step, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Okay? Third step, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Fourth step, and if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Very precise, concise language. There are four steps there. First step, go and show him his fault in private, one-on-one. That is why I say you have all been subjected to the Matthew 18 process. If you haven't, I'm afraid for you. If someone has confronted you on sin, on bad behavior, bad attitudes, that is what we're talking about here, okay? 
If there is no repentance, then you go to the second step. You take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This is where several of you may have been involved in this second step as helping someone to confirm facts. Bill stole money from me. Hopefully nobody here named Bill. I'm not talking about you if your name is Bill. Bill stole money from me. Well, that, as you can imagine, can be a very inflammatory um, accusation. And it's the grace of God that the process doesn't move on until several people step in and along with me can affirm, yes, Bill stole money from Chris. Okay? That's the second step. By the way, sometimes facts cannot be confirmed, and the process stops. Sometimes the facts go the exact opposite way. Turns out I stole money from Bill. That happens. I'm, by the way, I'm making that up. Some of you are looking at me like, really? You're going to tell us the rest of this story? There is no rest of the story. <laughs> okay? <laughs> sometimes the facts go the other way. Third, if he refuses to listen to those people, you tell it to the church. And why do you tell it to the church? For a call to repentance. You're calling them to repentance. And if, because the facts have already been confirmed. And let me just say this. Sometimes people think that when it's announced to the church, now it's my turn to play detective and go confirm all the facts. That is not what the church is called to do. That has already happened, okay? And then the fourth step is if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is removal from the church. Let me give you another perspective on these four steps. In the first step, how many people are involved? Two. In the second step, how many people are involved? Three or four, five maybe, somewhere in there. In the third step, how many people are involved? At Grace Church, we'll call it thousands, okay? And in the fourth step, how many people are involved? Zero. They're out of the church, okay? And I wanted to run through that. That fourth step is really, really serious. That is a profound event, a profound statement. But before we get to that, let me, let me go through some words here. In verse 15, it says, and I, I want to go to what is the purpose of Matthew 18. Well, verse 15 says, if he listens to you. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to the church. And then if he, refuse, or if he refuses to listen to the two or three, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church. Do you hear the word that's being repeated over and over? Listen. The goal here, and by the way, that word in verse 17 means to hear without heeding. It's not somebody who is deaf. It is someone who can hear the words, but they're not listening. They're not heeding what they're hearing. And what are they hearing? A call to repent. Okay? So the facts are established in verse 16 in the second step. And by verse 17, they're hearing a call to repent of the confirmed sin. It is no longer at that point, by the way, in the third step about drawing out a confession. And by the way, confession is nice, but that does not stop the process. Why? Because confession is not repentance. 
Those of you who are parents know this to be true. You've experienced it. You've seen it. Confession is the first step, maybe, on the path to repentance. And some of us, just to go back to the parenting example, we finally hear our child acknowledge their sin, and we throw a party because we think we're done. Finally. No, you're just beginning. Confession is nice. It's the first step towards repentance. It's not the last step. The goal of discipline is not an admission of guilt. The goal is a clear, demonstrable evidence of a turning from that sin, what we call repentance, and embracing the consequences of that sin, including righting the wrongs, if possible. So for those who are saved, Matthew 18 lays out the path towards restoration. You've heard it called um, the restoration process. That is true for believers. Okay? The path to restoration is repentance. When somebody is removed from the church, the hope and the prayer is that the separation from body life, from fellowship, from sitting under the preaching of the word will draw that believer, if they are a believer, back towards repentance. And that happens on occasion. But if you listen to that statement that's read here at Grace Church, that fourth um, step, we are very careful. We do not say that they are not saved. The Lord knows that. What we do say is that their lack of repentance is inconsistent with their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And now you know why we say that. We can't go beyond what the Bible says. So each of the four steps increases the seriousness of the situation, it increases the shepherding effort, and it increases the exercise of authority. That fourth step here at Grace Church is done by um, the elders of the church. The first step requires nothing of church leadership. It requires everything from you and me to be confronted, to repent, Sometimes to be the confrontor and to do it consistent with Scripture and to draw somebody towards um, repentance. So that's the first step. The fourth step, on the other hand, is as serious as any authority granted, I think, to any humans on this earth. To remove somebody from the fellowship of the church is to make the very public statement that this so-called believer may no longer fellowship with believers in the church except for the purpose of calling them to repentance. And just remember that that's not a harshness, that's not a a license to be cruel, it's not a license to be vindictive, because if you assume that they are unbelievers, now you have to go through the Bible and understand how the Bible says we're to treat unbelievers. And are we to treat unbelievers with vindictiveness, harshness, anger? No. We're to love them, we're to tell them the truth, and we're to call them to repentance. And that's how we interact with people who have been removed from the church. And this, that fourth step is always done in the hope and with the effort of eventual restoration. And we say that because the context of Matthew 18, 15 to 18, is really important. The passage right before it addresses the pursuit of the straying sheep. The passage right after that 
addresses the question, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So don't forget the context of Matthew 18. All right, let's look at other places in, in the Bible that address this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you can, turn to the, um, 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. We're actually going to look at the whole chapter, and hopefully we can do this in a very short amount of time. I think you'll get, get the point. 1 Corinthians 5 addresses flagrant public sin in the church, okay? And it's described in verse 1. It says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Gross. Public. Everybody knows about it. What's interesting about 1 Corinthians 5 is this whole chapter addresses this situation, but that is the only description you'll see of the sin. Because Paul's point is not to say, it is a sin for a man to have his father's wife. We all know that. Chapter 5 excoriates the leadership of the church. In fact, in verse 2, or, or uh, yeah, verse 2 kind of lays out an outline of the rest of the, the chapter. You have become arrogant. He's not talking to the sinners, he's talking to the leaders of the church in verse 2. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So there's a contrast here with how the Corinthian church leadership addressed this sin and how the Bible says to address it. He says you've become arrogant. That's the contrast with humility. Church discipline is done with humility. You have not mourned. You have not seen sin the way God sees sin. I can tell you, when we address sin issues in the church, there is a lot of mourning. You can tell which elders have been very involved in a church discipline process by how they are during that announcement in a communion service. There's a lot of mourning. That is how it should be um, um, addressed. Verse 2 also says, you have not removed sin from the church. They did not guard the church. Okay? And then verse 6, they're not very dignified. <laughs> the way he describes it here, um, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Verse 7, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. What he's, what he's talking about here is there is to be a vigilance. A vigilance in the church that sin is not allowed um, to grow. The influence of sin that is not addressed will corrupt the entire church. That's his point in 1 Corinthians 5. Allowing it to exist betrays a doctrine, a doctrinal issue that on the surface is disobedience. He clearly calls it that. And at the core is a failure to see the church as a reflection of a perfect, holy Jesus Christ. And so he goes right at that issue. And then 
um, verses 9 through 12, he challenges their discernment. The leadership lacks discernment. He, He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous, the swindlers, or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Here's a really important distinction that Paul is walking into. Nowhere are we commanded to separate ourselves from a sinful world. For those of us that work in a secular work environment, I do. I deal with people who are immoral, covetous, swindlers, idolaters, all day long. And so do you. Okay? And what Paul's saying here is that the leadership lacks discernment. And in verse 9, he describes um, the world we all have to live in. And then 9 and 10, and then verse 11, he says, But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so called brother if he's an immoral pr- person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler, a drunkard, or a swindler not even to eat with such a one. Do you see the difference? I don't think I have to belabor that. There is a world of difference between somebody who claims to not be a believer, living like an unbeliever lives, and dealing with somebody who claims to be a believer and lives like the world lives. Okay? Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Okay? So there's an issue of discernment. Discernment. And then verse 13 is the kill shot, if you will. It's the issue of obedience. Those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Do you see that? It starts with verse 1, a description of the sin. He indicts the leadership for their failure to understand the purpose of church discipline and to exercise church discipline. And he's warning them that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. You notice there's no mention of Matthew 18 in there, is there? There's no mention of a process. He doesn't say, do the four steps of church discipline. But it's implied the facts have already been confirmed, haven't they? Um, it's already public, isn't it? Paul's not even in Corinth and he knows about it. So the first two, or actually the first three steps have been done, and ultimately what Paul is saying here to the leadership of this church is um, you are failing, you are arrogant, you are disobedient because you won't take that next step. And what's the next step? Verse 13, remove sin from among your midst. Okay? And the implication here, by the way, is that the sin described in verse 1 is ongoing. Meaning, by definition, there's no repentance. Okay? Put them out. Fourth step. It says don't even eat with them in verse 11. So 1 Corinthians 5 Um, We could spend a lot of time there. It's very, very helpful um, in uh, understanding the purpose of discipline in the church, how it's to be done, and the the, uh, implications of not doing it. Now, turn back a couple pages to Romans 16, and we'll pick up the pace here 
um, through these next few passages. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites and their own smooth, flattering speech. With their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. This goes on all the time. That phrase, deceiving the hearts of the unsuspecting, is a very vivid parallel to what I read you in Acts 20, where it says, not sparing the flock and drawing away disciples. It says we're to keep our eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, and 1 Timothy 1 calls it strange doctrines. 1 Timothy 6 calls it different doctrines. We're to turn away from them. Now, if, how many of you walked into Grace Church with a strange doctrine? I did. Isn't that why we come to church, is to work all that out? I mean, if you look back and you remember the aha moments and sermons where John's preaching or somebody's preaching, and you're like, wow, I had that wrong. Am I the only one? No, of course not. And my point there is, We don't put people out of the church for having bad doctrine. That's why we come to church, right? And praise the Lord, we're in a church where we can get that doctrine straightened out. And we do. The point here is somebody who has grabbed onto that strange doctrine and has decided that they want to teach that strange doctrine and they want to gather people around them to follow them and their strange doctrine. And that happens at Grace Church on occasion. And I can tell you the process is pretty similar to Matthew 18. We're going to go confront that person, and we're going to sit down with them, and we're going to talk to them about that doctrine, and maybe it gets straightened out. Or maybe not. But if they are willing to stop teaching that doctrine and to be teachable, they are welcome at Grace Church with accountability. Okay, But if he's spreading the false doctrine and has a following, the elders must act to protect the flock. The Bible says here you must turn away from him, and that means remove him from a teaching or a leadership role, and if he won't step down from those roles and he continues, we have to remove them from the midst, from our midst. That's the command. And keep that thought, and let's fill it out a little bit. If you turn over to Titus chapter 3, another passage, very short, very profound, something the elders talk about at Grace Church a fair amount, because this happens. Titus 3, verse 9, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Verse 10, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So what this says is, do you see the reference there to Matthew 18? Step one and two, a first and second warning. Implied here is you go through the first two steps of Matthew 18 with a factious man, and then you put them out meaning you skip what step? The third step. Why would you do that? It's 
very dangerous. If you have a factious man, you have somebody, uh, it can be a woman too, by the way, but I'm just going to pick on the men. If you have a factious man, um, you can see the wisdom of not sending the church to call him to repentance, right? Because what is that factious man going to do? Factious. Is that a verb? He's going to try and draw more people behind him. He's going to try and spread. Um, and, and this is a parallel passage really to Romans 16 that I just read you, that when you're dealing with somebody who's creating factions in the church, false doctrine, strange teachings, and it's obvious that their purpose is to divide the church or the purpose is to draw people from the church to follow them rather than follow Christ, we act, okay? And we protect the flock. So, let me be clear about factious, by the way. I may not have been clear. It's not referencing unpleasant or critical people. It's not someone who complains about the preaching or complains about the preacher. Um, that's not faction. This is much more serious. This is false teaching. It's dangerous teaching, and it's clearly erroneous teaching that has the effect of dividing the church, creating dissension, confusing people. We went through this fairly recently at Grace Church in 2020, the social justice agenda. It was a very difficult time, very important time. It was a time where the elders had to address those issues with several people because it was dangerous, dangerous doctrine. And I'm not talking politics, social justice. I'm talking about doctrine, implications of that view of, um, of the gospel. So the principles of Matthew 18 are very clearly relevant in this case. There's private confrontations, confirming facts. I can tell you this from experience here at Grace confirming facts about their doctrine. There's patience. There's a pursuit of um, uh, repentance and restoration. But the third step is bypass. And on occasion, you have heard an announcement of a factious person being removed from the fellowship at Grace Church. And that is always um, followed by a warning, a very strong warning to avoid them. By the way, these issues are handled quietly. Um, at least here at Grace Church. Why? Because the goal is always to bring that sinning brother back into repentance and restoration. And once you make it public, that reduces the ability to do that. But when the Bible commands us to make it public, it goes public. Okay? As uncomfortable as that may be, sometimes we're going to obey God God's clear warning. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, verse 20. Talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander, where Paul says, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Strong words, isn't it? Okay, this is another church discipline matter. Blaspheme, that means to speak lightly or profanely of sacred things, to revile, to rail at, to slander. And he references two people. Hymenaeus is referenced in 2 Timothy 2, 
and he, he talks about Hymenaeus in the context of his talk spreading like gangrene. Do you know what gangrene is? You know, one translation is um, uh, cancer. But gangrene is death of tissue from the lack of uh, blood supply, and it spreads rapidly. And if you don't address it quickly, it can take over the whole body and kill it. And sometimes that happens very fast. And so when people get frostbite, for example, they usually or sometimes end up, let's say their toes or their feet are frozen. There's gangrene that sets in. What do they do to the feet? They amputate them. This is serious. And that's the picture Paul's drawing when he talks about Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy 2. Alexander is referenced in 2 Timothy 4. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That deals with the personal affront. There's a distinction there. He did great damage to Paul. And then it goes on in verse 15. Be on guard against him yourself, for he rigorously opposed our teaching. Okay? So that's what he's talking about in 1 Timothy 1.20 when he references Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he's turned over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Handing them over to Satan sounds harsh and unloving, doesn't it? Our, the world will tell you that. People in the church will tell you that. Note this is always done. As with all discipline, we cannot miss the last few words of First Timothy 1.20, which says, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. There's the grace. There's the purpose. You've done everything you can. You've done everything instructed by Scripture, and now it's an issue of I'm going to trust the Lord that this is what He's told us to do and that the Lord will take it from here so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. This doesn't contradict Matthew 18. Then there's 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. This passage is used by some in spiritual leadership as a hurdle, a procedural hurdle to fend off legitimate confrontation of sin. That is not what 1 Timothy 5 is saying. What 1 Timothy 5 is saying is that a pastor or an elder is to be subject to the same process as everyone else. And to confirm that, verse 21, the next verse says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Matthew 5 is saying that elders are subject to the same process of discipline as anybody else. And the process is Matthew 18. And why do I say that? Well, step one and two is implied. Don't bring an accusation against an elder except on the word of two or three witnesses. Doesn't that sound like you've confirmed facts? Go to them in private, then take two or three people to, conf excuse me, to confirm facts. And then step three, it says those who continue in sin, step four, rebuke in the process uh, or in the presence of all. Elders are subject to church discipline. Okay? 
And the purpose of the third and fourth step for a sinning elder is also clarified and amplified in 1 Timothy 5.20. It says, so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. When you hear an announcement, any Matthew 18 announcement, but especially of someone in, in the leadership of the church, and we've had that happen here in the last couple of years, it should cause you not um, um, to spread the word and, and, and talk and gossip. It should cause every one of us to be in fear of falling into the same sin and the failure to repent. Okay? So let me close with some application. I would imagine there's a few questions out here, but we're not going to do Q&A. Next Sunday we're doing a Q&A if you want to ask questions. But I want to head some of that off and maybe answer some questions, some common questions um, that I get about how church discipline is done here at Grace Church. Here's some uh, summary observations. First of all, Matthew 18 works. I want to. I want you to know, and I, I I say that I don't want to minimize or be flippant about Matthew 18, but I'm stating the obvious. Of course, it works. Christ put in place Matthew 18. He said it himself, and I can tell you the process works. It exposes those who are saved. Who, who got caught in some sin, and they repent, and they're restored. The process works. It affirms the claim of salvation in Christ for those people. It also exposes those who were probably unbelievers all along. We've seen that, where we see behavior and attitudes and a hardness of heart that is stunning, just stunning, and it is completely inconsistent with both what they said they were and what we all knew they or thought they were. Matthew 18 exposes that. Matthew 18 also works because some people come back. We did an announcement two or three months ago of a man, um, um, I remember vividly the Matthew 18 process where he was removed from Grace Church and then he has been back at Grace Church for the last couple of years demonstrating a consistent, established pattern of life that allowed everyone to affirm, by all evidence, this man is repentant. And we got to tell the church that. That's, that's the purpose, one of the purposes um, of Matthew 18. Because the way Christ designed it is, and that's why I went through the numbers, one per, it's two people, and then it's three, four, or five people, and then it's thousands of people involved, and then it's nothing. And sometimes we have done everything we can as a church to call someone to repentance, and then that's it. And once somebody gets outside of the fellowship of the church, they miss that fellowship. It, it gives them a stark picture of where they are and why they're there. And that is what draws somebody who has been removed from a church who is a believer back into the church. Of course, that's not going to work for somebody who's not a believer. Now, a couple other points. When you hear an announcement at Grace Church, there's often been hundreds of hours of um, invested in that situation. I just want you to know that. Um, 
there are hundreds of hours confirming facts, calling to repentance, shepherding, discussions. Um, sometimes that process starts and stops several times. There, there are Sunday mornings when we're about to make an announcement and we'll get a text message. And that text message, while repentance is not words, but those words indicate that maybe something here is changing, we will stop the process on that Sunday morning and not make that announcement. It's a very deliberative, careful process here. There is no topic that is slower or more deliberate for the elders than a Matthew 18 case. Those of you that have been to Matthew, or Matthew 18, those of you who have been to elder meetings know that we have an open session and then we go to a closed session. And what we talk about in the closed session are issues and not all bad, but issues that have names attached to them. And included in that is church discipline cases. We're very, very, very careful about those. Um, any announcement you hear requires the unanimous um, uh, approval of, at this point, I think we're at 37 elders. Try and get 37 guys to agree on anything, but also something as difficult as, is there evidence of repentance? Very, very difficult. And by the way, if one guy says there is, we're going to put a hold on the process. We're very, very careful. So I want you to know when you hear an announcement at Grace, that's what's behind it. A lot has rolled into that. Um, all of that takes time. What doesn't take a lot of time sometimes or on occasion is a divisive or a factious person. That will move very, very quickly sometimes, often. Why? Because we're called to protect the flock, protect the church. When you hear an announcement, what you're going to hear is a brief summary. We're not going to give a lot of details. And the reason for that is the underlying sin is not why the person is being talked about. And you know that now, right? I sound like a broken record. It's important maybe to know the underlying sin, but the more important point is our job in response to that announcement, if it's a third step announcement, is to call them to what? Repentance. Not to go examine the sin. Not to go and confirm the facts of the sin. It is to lovingly, carefully, aggressively, to the extent you know them, call them to repentance. And if you don't know them, you pray for them. And I hope you do that. I know those announcements go by pretty quick sometimes. But even if you don't remember their name, the Lord does. Pray that the Lord would grant them repentance. That's our responsibility. If it's a fourth step, they're being removed from the fellowship of Grace Church. There's no action asked of you, okay, um, other than to interact with them accordingly when you see them. If it's an announcement regarding being a factious person, you're going to hear a very clearly worded warning, and you need to heed that warning, in our opinion, okay, for your safety. How do we respond to these announcements? Um, one is we need to be obedient. I need to pray for that person. If I know that person is uncomfortable as it might be, as much as I don't want to do it, I need to get on the phone with that person, have that difficult conversation, and call them to repentance. I need to heed the warning if there's a warning. I need to fear sin. 
I need to take that time. That's why we do these announcements um, at communion. It is a contemplative process to begin with, a process of um, remembering, but also examining ourselves. And it is very a poignant moment, isn't it, to hear those announcements in that context as we examine our own hearts and our own lives. You're not going to hear the elders privately or from up front discuss details. Okay? It's called gossip. We don't want to do that. There are always circumstances and factors of these situations that the elders know, and some, uh, especially elders who are directly involved, but they're not known outside that circle, and there's really no reason for them to be known. The application of that is recently the internet warriors have stirred up controversy here at Grace Church over issues that they have little, they may have perceived knowledge, but they have little or no knowledge of what they're talking about. And I I, I want to just briefly talk about why you see us respond the way we do to these internet warriors. That's what I call them. They know that we are not going to respond to them. They know it would be inappropriate for us to respond to them. And they're leveraging that. Um, they pretty much get to say whatever they want, don't they? And I, I just want you to know the fl- that flippancy with truth that we've seen in the last two years um, directed at Grace Church does not compel us to engage with them publicly or privately. It's inappropriate. And I say that, I, I'm not really trying to point fingers at internet warriors, I really want you, I I mostly want you to know that the elders of Grace Church take this process very seriously. It's a very confidential um, process, and the discipline of the Lord is a serious matter, and we view it as a serious matter here, not one for public discussion or debate. The people involved in the discipline know. They know what they know. And, you know, the um, the, the recent criticism about cases that are 20 years old and 40 years old, that's how far back they're going to take these shots. They do not know what they're talking about. And I can tell you I don't either because I wasn't here 40 years ago. I, wasn't an el- I was here. I was not an elder 40 years ago. And to presume that somebody has knowledge of all the work that went into that and the relationships Um, it's extraordinarily um, presumptuous. And I just want to remind you, for every name you hear being announced, and I know you know this, I just want us to think about this. For every name you hear up there, there is a spouse, there are children, there's extended family, there's associates, friends, employees sometimes, victims sometimes, sitting in the congregation around you. We need to um, be aware of that and understand that the shepherding of the elders involves all those people. And some of you probably have been involved in helping in the shepherding of those people. Um, That's what the body of Christ does. The shepherding focus is not just on the sinning member. It's on all of the ripples that that um, causes in personal relationships. The church is full of sinners. We've already established that. There's people in our congregation that have been involved in sin that is shocking 
it um, is offensive and for some people very difficult to settle in and realize I'm going to go to church with somebody like this? Well, the first reminder is such were some of you, right? And one of the other things that the internet warriors cannot accept is that in Christ there is forgiveness, there is redemption, and there is fellowship in a church regardless of the sin that you've committed. Someone who has committed the most um, offensive sin you can think of, who is repentant, who is a believer, cannot and at Grace Church will not be excluded from the fellowship of other believers at Grace Church. Now, sometimes there's going to be extraordinary accountability. And you, you can fill in the blanks on that one. We're going to protect the flock in every way. But one of the things our pastor over the years has been very clear about is church membership isn't difficult. If somebody's a believer, they're a part of the fellowship of Grace Community Church. Assuming that they are repentant, they're accountable and a believer. So, when there's a Matthew 18 situation and it goes to the third step, and this happens, and the name is read from up front, and it's marital infidelity, and you all know there's his wife, there's his children, and there may be other things involved. When that man repents, that's the end of the Matthew 18 process, and it is offensive to some people that we don't throw him out because he is such an idiot, or he ruined his family. He hurt his family so badly. Do you resonate with what I'm saying? And I'm making this point so you understand. Matthew 18 is not punishment. It is a process to bring somebody to repentance. And there have been cases where the sin against the family has been absolutely extraordinary, but they're not put out of the church. That's why. Now, for the sake of the family, we may say, you need to go find another church for a while. And we will help that person do that. They're still living at home, or, or maybe not, whatever. It gets complicated. You get that? It gets complicated. We're going we're gonna, to um, be very careful with the church discipline process that it's used to bring people to repentance and restoration, but we're also going to um, protect the flock here at Grace Church. The leadership at Grace Church does not want to be 1 Corinthians 5 leadership. And, and uh, I hope this has been helpful for you to understand maybe a more full picture of what church discipline is, what the issues are, and how this process works. And if I've, um, if I've raised more questions than I've answered, we'll see you next week in the Q&A, okay? Or I'll stick around after. Let me close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, Lord, that I would not have confused um, this issue. Thank you for the clarity of, of your words in Matthew 18. And Lord, we thank you for this church, a church that takes the purity of the church and the glory of your name seriously. Thank you for this church that would remove any one of us for an unrepentant heart and a hardened heart that refuses um, to repent from sin. Lord, I pray that um, you would keep Grace Church pure in that regard, that you um, would protect this church, that you would cause the elders and the leadership to be on guard for themselves, 
and also for all the flock. And Lord, we ask for your wisdom and grace as leaders at Grace Church in, in the exercise of that function of being an elder. Lord, we know it's your church. You bought it with your blood, and we're grateful for that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Have a good day.